Welcome to Continuous Dream. Today, Part 3, Chapters 7 and 8 of Kells, The Gospel of Columba, a novel by Amy Kreider. Part 3, read by Baird Brucher. Chapter 7 Baghdad On the horizon was something white that I mistook for a bright cloud. It was the curving wall of Baghdad. The call of their wailing prayer rang out and we stopped for it. I sensed the stillness inside the wall as the whole city bowed, facing in one direction. When the wail ceased and there was a kind of hum rising again from within, we continued. The wall curved, as if scribed by a compass, encircling the round city. Baghdad is a new city. It sparkles white, clean as a bleached bone. The roads spiral like a shell. And in its center are towers with tops like onions. Fountains sparkle raining over blue and green tiles. Boys and men smiled at us as they played or went about their business. There were no women on the street. All seemed peaceful and serene. It was crowded, but the city was organized with a place for the market and places of other business and crafts, so that there wasn't the pageant of chaotic activity like in X. In the air was the sense of patience and civility it was hot, blazing hot, and there was a slowness, a languor to the men who ambled from one place to another. I had the sense that here, my purse would not be clipped from my belt. I was feeling warmly toward it all, until we came to a crowd gathered in front of a stage. There was a wooden block, and a man with a black hood, his hands bound. Another man in neat robes had a large curving sword by his side. When the sword came down, I closed my eyes. When I opened them, the severed head's eyes were staring. It seemed straight at me with accusation. What crime had he committed? Later I learned he had profaned their god and practiced some pagan ritual. It was a very strange thing in this peaceful, clean white city this bloodshed in its heart. I thought of Karl executing the three hundred Saxons, cutting their heads measured by the length of a sword. It seems there is no escape from this use of power, and I pray my people on our little islands never come to this, for an executed pagan cannot then be saved. When the crowd dispersed, the street gave way to a gleaming white palace with marble steps. Two guards came down to us, and at their command boys appeared to unload our camels. We were shown into the courtyard. Its thick walls shut out the noise of the streets and reflected the bright sun. Deep archways covered with wooden screens led into the dark, cool interior. Ali, a steward of Harun, entered and gave us a tour of the garden where jasmine scented the air. Peacocks glided across our path. I recalled Lutgard's first speech to me longing to see the peacocks, and my ears filled with the peacocks' strange, lonely cries. 
echoing my lonely loss. At the end of the garden, past splashing marble fountains and through a long shady archway we came to a great pen, within which two elephants ate leaves side by side, a mother and her infant. I was not entirely surprised because so much strangeness had already greeted me, but I was awed nonetheless. Ali made a whirring call and the two elephants approached the fence. They seemed contented animals, and the baby stretched its trunk toward us for Ali to stroke. It was adorable. I heard voices, and three men in flowing white robes approached us. Isaac introduced the three Musa brothers, whom he told us were brilliant inventors. Ali chatted with them, and they laughed, sharing a joke. Isaac looked displeased, but I didn't find out why until later. Isaac was right to be displeased, I learned. We strolled away from the elephants to a bower hanging with blooming vine roses. Tucked amid the foliage was a silver birdcage with a little silver bird in it. By silver, I mean the bird was literally made of silver. One of the Musa brothers turned a key in the cage, and the mechanical bird opened its beak and sang a charming tune. There was also a pond filled with mercury with golden boats floating upon it. And there were games. I poured water in a vessel by a small curtained theatre. The curtains parted, and dancing dolls appeared. There was a water clock that rang a bell at each hour. The Musa brothers devised all these wonders. I felt content in this garden. I could enjoy its warmth and scented flowers for a long time. A movement caught my eye. A woman crossed a path at the other end of the garden carrying a pail. Ali, with a little bow to us, hurried over to her and stopped her with what seemed to be a sharp reprimand. The woman's headdress slipped back for a moment as she looked up at him boldly. I glimpsed black hair that caught the light, but a pale face not like those around me. She seemed familiar. Ali shortly returned to us, briefly explaining that the kitchen slaves weren't supposed to cross the garden. We ambled back inside the cool hall and Ali showed us to an indoor fountain room where we washed ourselves, and then we followed him to dinner. For a long while, since our arrival in Francia, Darek had ceased to notice whether I obeyed my penance, so I ate a delightful feast of exotic dishes with light, fluffy bread. Spices warmed my mouth, and we drank a sweet beverage made of limes. As we ate dates and nuts, a girl was brought into the room. She was apparently blind. She stood in the middle of the room, rather stiffly, and she sang. To my shock, she sang in my own language. She was in her teens, tall and willowy. She sang a long, lovely, mournful ballad that I knew and her flute-like, haunting voice cast a spell on us. When she finished, her veil slipped back a little, revealing bright red hair. All the men gasped in admiration. Then she was led out again. The youngest Musa brother shook Ali's arm, talking eagerly. Isaac translated to me that this was a slave sold to the court in recent months, and prized for her voice. Strangely, Ali added with contempt. But to me she is only a squeaking mouse. 
Musa looked as if transported to another world. What is her name? Deirdre. He repeated the name, softly rolling the R in a low voice. Then I remembered why she and the slave in the garden were familiar. I was sure I had seen them on the slave boat in Frisia. Dancers came in next and began a wild romp unlike anything I had seen before. But Isaac, knowing us to be holy men, rose and excused us, asking Ali to take us to our rooms so that I only got a glimpse of the excitement. In the hallway, Darek asked Isaac about the market, and he promised to take us soon when his business was settled. We lingered as guests in the palace, and such was the largesse of the place that no one seemed concerned about us. There was plenty of food and space in the sunny gardens and shaded halls. Isaac was busy, and we didn't see him for a while, but Christopher was with us, translating when needed and keeping us company. I was eager to see the House of Wisdom, and Christopher took us there. The House of Wisdom adjoined the palace on one side, another massive white building with high windows with decorative screens. Within, the front was a large high room with tables and chairs, where men read and made notes. Dividing the room was a screen with a gate, beyond which rose shelves and shelves of scrolls for three stories. The librarian guarded the gate at his desk. Harun is amassing all the literature of the world here. Your friends the Nestorians are copying and translating some of it for him. I bent my neck back and stared at the scroll-laden shelves, my mouth hanging open. Not even Alcuin had such a library. Of the writing of books, there is no end, Darek murmured. Christopher led us to a far table, where the three Musa brothers were standing bent over a scroll, seeming to be disputing something but in soft, friendly voices. They straightened as we approached and grasped Isaac's hand, squeezing his arm. On the scroll before them was a drawing of an orb. Darek passed his finger over it. Is this the world as God sees it? he asked. Christopher translated. The brothers said it was. The youngest, with a shy sweet face and round cheeks above his neat black beard, explained through Isaac, I have measured it, it is twenty-four thousand miles around. Darek raised an eyebrow. You are confident to measure the vast earth? I am a scientist. I am more curious than confident. But to place a figure on God's world as easily as that, it wasn't so easy. My brow wrinkled at the thought of it. Twenty-four thousand miles. Thousand miles for each hour of the day and night. How many had I come? How much more of the world was there? No man could see it all. At one point we had an audience with their great king, Harun al-Rashid. Harun sat cross-legged on a cushion, his left hand resting lightly on his knee, and his right hand turned up, his middle finger touching his thumb. His copper-coloured skin shone. He had a moustache, but no beard covered his sharp chin. He was about thirty years old. His eyes were intense and alert. Isaac interpreted for us. His voice was high and nasal, 
a bit like Carl's. He's a man of sharpness, sharp eyes, sharp nose. He complimented us on Carl's gifts, though they could not have impressed him. He did seem sincere in his appreciation of the hunting dogs. He intended to reciprocate in grand style. He was curious about the world, sincerely questioning us. What is the difference between Constantinople and Rome? Which is greater, he asked. Christopher answered. Both consider themselves greater. Constantinople has been far richer for its history and location. But don't discount Rome, nor Francia under the Emperor Karl. He smothered a smile. And then who is this Pope I hear about? What sort of kingdom does he rule? Tarek was sitting next to me. At that moment he lunged and prostrated himself. Speaking through Isaac, he said, Kind sir, ruler of this empire, we beg you, I beg you, I have come this way on a mission for only one thing. We need lapis lazuli to make blue ink for a glorious work of art honoring our Saint Columba. I may ask you, do you have lapis we can buy? We seek nothing else. Harun listened. He smiled kindly on Darek and gestured to a servant to help the monk straighten himself up. He spoke to another servant who bowed and left. Please don't concern yourself, he said to Darek. What your emperor and your pope could not give you, it is easy for us. It will be sent to you. Darek made a choking sound, trembling. I have been promised often, he whispered. But only I heard, and I prayed that at last it would be fulfilled because I was the one who had promised, over and over. We returned to the palace to dine, and the Musa brothers joined us. Once again, after we ate, the girl from my country sang a ballad that filled my eyes with the green of my land, filled my ears with storms and morrigan cries, filled my heart with the lonely hills, dark dappled forest, and pearlescent skies. Oh, if my love were like the swallow that flies up in the sky, then with my love I would now follow and kiss my love or I will die. After she finished to scattered applause, the young Musa stood and bowed to her. She didn't acknowledge it as she was led out. She can't see, Christopher reminded him. From the looks of her eyes, I think she has cataracts. I came here to watch your doctors perform that surgery. The elder Musa brothers were laughing and teasing their sibling. An earnest look crossed the young man's face. If it can be done, why should it not, Allah willing? I had hoped to speak to her. It seemed right to inquire of Ali, the steward, but he was not with us that evening. I arose early the next morning and wandered out to the garden and took the path between white blossoms to the elephant pen. I tried making that whirring call Ali had made when the baby came up to see me. To my surprise, I heard the call echoed in a feminine voice behind me and I turned. The slave that I'd seen Ali rebuke that first day approached encumbered by a large basket of lettuces. When she saw me, 
She stopped and bowed, then approached the pen. She unlatched a low gate and slid the basket through it into the pen. Both elephants hastened to eat. She lingered to watch, holding her veil across her face. Where are you from? I asked in Scots. She turned and let go of the veil, looking me full in the face. Her mouth was set in stoic reserve. Her eyes shone hard though they were dark. They flashed like moonlight on a dark lake. The reserve fell like her veil, and it seemed in her eyes I saw months of terror, bone-exhausting work, and a tremble of hope. I'm from Connacht. Her voice contained fear and doubt. She looked as if afraid to believe I could be a friend. I'm from Iona. Her lip trembled. My brother is a master scribe there. Connachta. Does he live? My heart thudded in my ears. How could this be? Was I delirious? Yes, as far as I know. He is now the abbot. Who are you? Her eyes filled with tears. She put her hand to her mouth and between her fingers said, I was Una. Who are you? Are you angel or devil? I've probably been both in my time, but I can promise to be neither. Only a child of God's mysterious plan. My name is Kellach. I travelled with your brother to the monastery. She held out her shaking hands and I took them. We were too overcome to speak for a few moments. Please, tell me everything, I said, when I could speak. Chapter 8 Una's Story It was in darkness we left, the dark morning with few stars in the cloudy sky and no moon. We left because a man, a terrible man, told us the scribe had died. I thought it could not be my brother, but that there were a well sure blessed by that scribe that would cure Deirdre's blindness. Deirdre, my daughter, my darling. She is here as well. I thought it was a sign to obtain this saintly blessing. What choice did I have? If I could cure my darling babe, who is so good and hard-working and faithful, I would have no choice but to try. It was God's will, it must be. We left in the dark morning with the man, Ultan, a stranger who brought this tale, and our own young Ferdich. We passed north to the sea, but on the way the devil made Ultan mad, and he tried to take my daughter, who was not yet a woman and not of age. He hanged himself from an oak in the storm-shattered night. We were so close, there was no choice but to keep on to Iona, to see my brother and drink from the well. We found a boat and we floated our fate in the hands of God on the vast sea. In the mist came a ship, a ship from hell. Giant men, they were not men, gigantic white-haired devils took us and slew the dear Ferdi. I don't know who or what these beings were or are now, but it seemed I had dreamt them in a nightmare. They shackled us, and there were other Scots shackled aboard their hell boat, 
They shouted at each other, and I think they argued over who owned us. I was sold five times on this journey, all told. The first time on this boat. We ate dried fish but once a day. One of the Scots, a man, jabbered in an endless stream of talk and prayer. Fear had made him mad. We rolled on the sea, and when we arrived it was night. We pulled onto a beach with the other hellboats. We came out into the darkness, into a village. We were thrust into a barn. It was dark, and the earth floor was damp. There was one window, and after a while wavered the red light of flames. There was only darkness and that fire, and hell was out there. In the dim morning we came out. There was a large group of us, perhaps a hundred, and mostly foreign tongues around me. I was shackled to strangers, and Deirdre was a few lines ahead. I glimpsed her red hair from time to time, and I followed it, trying not to lose sight of her. She was out of reach, and those who called out were whipped, so that I could not comfort her with my voice. We were herded onto the boats again, prodded roughly, the children crying. I began the Lord's Prayer, and a few countrymen joined in until we were slapped into silence. The boat took us to a village on the water in a flat marshy land. I heard the name, Frisia. There we were penned like cattle, and was the second time I was sold. Before the journey continued, I shared a pen with a countryman, and we comforted each other, talking of our homes and our dear saviour. But we were separated the next day. Onto another boat, to another market, where I was sold the third time. All the while Deirdre was near me, just beyond my reach. At this last market before the great river, we were separated, so that women were shackled together in groups of five, and men apart, and children. It was to my great relief that Deirdre was put with the children, and went unmolested. We were then put onto the great river. I did not know of any such river before, but it seems to split the world. All along I was trying to imagine where I was, to keep some kind of map in my head. I had heard of Frisia before and I knew we were east of there, and by the sun, though it was often dark and cloudy, I knew we were headed southeast. But what this river was, or these giant forests, I knew not. My fellow captive men were made to row, forced to take themselves to their fate. Most of us were not Scots, but of some pagan race with black hair and dark slanted eyes, long necks and jutting cheeks. The woman I was chained to spoke an unfamiliar tongue, thick and strange, a heavy tongue. There was a child who was sick, and I was chained to her mother. Her mother, Rosa, called, Natalia, Natalia, to the girl, who was chained to Deirdre. Deirdre comforted her by singing to soothe the child, who coughed hard and whose breath was a loud rasp. She was thin with great eyes and skin like the moon. She closed her eyes and stopped responding to her mother's calls. Natalia, Natalia, I'll hear it until I die. The girl's loud breathing fell to a rasp, and then she stopped breathing. 
the beasts our masters cut her from her shackles and threw her into the river. I'll hear it until I die, the moaning. Natalia, Natalia. The men, not men, but the monstrous white-haired beasts who kept us captive, molested us, and the pain was like water surging in my lungs. I prayed and prayed. The other women I was chained to spoke in choked whispers one night. They were of the same race, and Rosa, though sick with grief, seemed to command them, as she was tall and broad, and even in her grief seemed inordinately strong. They rose one night and dragged me over the side of the boat into the Black River. I knew it was not to escape, but to seek the refuge of death. The monsters followed us quickly, and with great struggles and fighting and heaving, got us back onto the boat. But after that they quit molesting us. The river came out of the forest and into a grassy plain. I don't know how long we floated. It seemed this river could circle the world and we could never leave it, but it knew there was an end in mind for us, to be sold again. I prayed. One woman sobbed endlessly and I felt annoyed by it. I knew I had no choice as to what would become of me, or where I was at that moment, but I knew I could choose to despair or choose to have faith. I chose not to despair, and that I would be rewarded with a miracle. Later, the woman collapsed and died, and was cut from the shackles and thrown overboard. I prayed for her pagan soul. At last we came from the river into a lake or a sea. There was no end of water, and the sight of this new sea did give me some despair. I thought of my dear husband, and prayed he should know that I yet lived. I prayed over the water for the water to tell the grass, to tell the birds that flew over the wide world, to fly to my home and tell my dear Dermot his wife was living and loved him still. My heart was sick. The land around us changed. It was dry and rocky. The grassy plains became a desert before my eyes. Surely this was the end of the world. At last, we came to a village built of stone on the shore. Instead of pulling the boats ashore, there were posts and platforms to tie them to. The boat was boarded by men like those of this city, black and wearing gowns of silk. They counted us and divided us. Deirdre was in the line ahead of me. I called her name, and she called to me to have faith. She sang as we marched to her sweet, sad songs, and it filled my heart to hear her. From there, we marched through the desert, south and west, past mud-brick villages, and in a caravan with their strange, ugly pack animals. It felt good to walk at last. When we arrived at the moat around this city, I was able to grasp Deidre and hold her. I tried to tell our guards she was my daughter. At the gate the heathens in silk looked to reject Deidre, but the monster men tapped her and gave her leave to sing. Our new masters seemed satisfied. They took her away and I didn't see her as I spent the day scrubbing the tile floors. But that night we slept together, and she told me that she was taken to a hall where she could hear men eating and enjoying themselves. There was music, 
She was prodded forward, and they tapped her throat, and she understood they wanted her to sing, so she sang. She heard them sigh and utter grunts of approval. Every night she sings at their dinner, and they seem content with her. And every night after I scrub the endless tile, we are together. They dress her in silk, like one of their women. I don't know how long we have been here. We have lived here long enough to know their language somewhat, and their language is our common tongue among the slaves. Rosa learnt it fastest, and she commands the kitchen slaves now. Deirdre eats and sleeps with us. She gives Deirdre the smallest portion to eat, because, as Rosa said, she doesn't work. All along I felt my faith would be rewarded with a miracle. And I prayed, and I asked God when the miracle would be. Now I know that time is eternal to our God, and no amount of time is long to him, and that my fears are over, and my faith is rewarded. For surely it is a miracle to find a friend of my brother's at the end of this endless journey. She put her hands to her face and choked back a sob. I thought she would collapse into a storm of tears, but she straightened up and looked into my face. Her eyes held a ferocity I'd never seen. I felt in this mad journey she had become another kind of being. She was no longer completely human. I wanted to reach out to her, but I felt afraid. I was shaking at the wonder of her story. Now my miracle has come, because I obeyed God's choice for me, she said. Her mouth trembled, and she rubbed her lips to still them, never taking her fierce eyes off me. My heart pounded. Who are you? she asked. Steps approached. Rosa was upon her, grabbing her by the ear. I couldn't follow her quick, accented speech, but she started to pull Una away. I pulled Rosa's hand off her and put my other arm around Una. She is from my homeland, I said. I was asking her questions. Rosa bowed to me, and when she straightened up, she towered over both of us, so that I felt her commanding presence. We must keep our place. It is my duty to correct her. I will take responsibility. It is not yours to take, honoured monk. Una slunk out of my arm and slipped away to the kitchen with no glance at either of us. Rosa gave me a shrug, another small bow, and followed after her. I knew that men from the palace would be travelling west to trade with Jerusalem. I asked for some paper to write my very first letter. I would write to Connachtach and send the letter with them, in the hope that it would be taken to X, and from there all the way home. It was only a possibility it could get that far, but a letter seemed a magical thing, and I wanted him to know of this extraordinary news. So I learned my first lesson of writing letters. Sometimes you regret writing them. Afterward, Isaac and Christopher came across the garden then, and joined me by the elephants. I told them a summary of Una's extraordinary story. We will ask Karun to allow us to buy her freedom, Isaac said. Christopher patted my back excitedly. Not only that, but the blind singer is her daughter, and plans are being arranged for the surgery I came here to witness. We will have an audience with Harun al-Rashid soon, Isaac said. He has gifts to present that we must take back to Carl. The baby elephant, through eating, came over to us by the fence 
and stretched out its trunk, which I stroked. Do you still think Carl an impressive king? Isaac asked me. I felt chagrined, but I wanted to answer intelligently. There are more grades of greatness than I thought. He seemed the greatest of kings. Now Harun seems the greatest. Perhaps there is a greater one still. There is a vast empire farther east, even beyond India, where silk and other luxuries come from. But I wonder now how you see mighty Christendom. He told me once that because Christendom ruled the world, ruled the prosperous nations, that it was a sign of its superiority. What do you think of its superiority now? If the true religion belongs to the greatest kingdom, does not the religion of these heathens surpass the religion of your Christ? I didn't answer. This troubled me. Suddenly I knew that my real quest was to find the greatest power there was. And perhaps I had found it. Even the Pope seemed less mighty than Harun. And who knew what power lay in this empire to the east? We soon had another audience with Harun, in the cool tent-like room. Darek trembled beside me. I think you wanted this, Harun indicated for his servant to come forward and place a pouch in Darek's hand. Darek emptied it into his palm. Two blue stones clicked together. The lapis. Darek clutched it to his heart. A great light shone on his face. How strange and sudden it was at last. Thank you, kind lord, he said. His voice sounded stronger than it had in many months. I am sending back silks, a clock, other things, and a great surprise. Oh, I did like the hunting dogs. I tested them today. They are good animals. I thank your honorable king for them. He rubbed his fingers together. I have heard you know one of my servants. A good worker, I have been told. You are a friend of her brother's. I am pleased to grant her freedom to return with you. I bowed deeply, and Harun raised his hand. It is a pleasure to restore what is lost. When you are well rested, you will return with my regards to my dear brother, Carl. Please enjoy our city as long as you like. He made a little bow from the waist at his seat, and the servants led us out. We went back out into the garden. Ali joined us with slaves carrying a sedan chair. Ah, I was hoping I'd find you here. I have a treat for you. How would you like to ride the elephant? He saw my beaming face reply and admitted me into the enclosure. The slaves gave commands to the mother elephant prodding her a bit with slender goads, and she knelt. They saddled her with the sedan. I climbed in, and the elephant stood. I had never been so high off the ground. Ali led the animal around in the pen. I swayed back and forth, and kept feeling that I would fall. It's most disorienting. I'm on top of the world, but without security. I called to my companions. Let that be your first lesson about power, Darek called back. He was cured, and it was as if all that we had been through became known to him at once. To be continued.
If you enjoy Continuous Stream, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. For other ways to support the show, please see the show notes or visit www.continuousstream.com. Thanks for listening.